trauma kind of changes your biology. But there is biology that we can have that will actually make us more at risk for experiencing trauma in our life. And if we can identify that, my goodness, like how much, how much <laughs> could we save ourselves from having to experience in life? And the neurotransmitters or the brain chemistry is certainly one piece of that. Welcome to This Functional Life, a show for women just like you, who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, purpose. We're going to deconstruct norms, uncover your deepest desires, harness your physical and mental health, and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what you want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking complex science and making it easy to understand and integrate into daily life. Join the journey to make this chapter the best ever. Let's get thriving. So I think I could speak for almost everybody when we can pretty much come to a collective answer that today, after the last two years of a pandemic, all of us feel some degree of trauma. What's interesting is we can all have different degrees of trauma, both big T trauma, big, big life events, and small T traumas, smaller life events, but all of us experience it in some way, shape, or form. My next guest, Dr. Amy Apegian, who's a, a good friend of mine, is going to walk you through the things that you may not know about trauma and how we might be able to reframe how to look at trauma, but also her signature pathway to actually help recover and rebalance the body from trauma. And she actually has a fantastic program that she does with individuals in group that are struggling with trauma, but also with professionals. So let me tell you about my guest because she comes with a wealth of knowledge and also experience that can help people make it through traumatic experience. Dr. Amy is board certified as a medical physician in both preventative and addiction medicine. She holds double master's degrees in biochemistry and public health. She is the leading medical expert on addressing stored trauma in the body through her signature model and methodology, the biology of trauma, a new lens that courageously uplevels old methods of trauma work and medicine by reverse engineering trauma's effect on the nervous system and the body on a cellular level. Dr. Amy specializes in trauma attachment and addictions after having personal experience in foster parenting, adopting, and then having her own health issues that were a result of childhood trauma and life experiences. In addition to her medical studies, which have included functional medicine certification, she has sought out trauma therapy training since 2015. And today we're really going to be talking about not only what's happening physically in your body and neurologically and chemically in your body, but where things may be failing in the way that we, particularly in the Western world, treat trauma and how to identify it. And then even more importantly, the process it takes to actually fix trauma once and for all. So please, everybody. Join me and Dr. Amy on This Functional Live. Well, Dr. Amy, I am so excited to talk to you today. It's, you know, not about a topic that people really want to talk about, I would say, but I think it's so apropos because everybody's experiencing some level after the last two years of trauma. So I want you to, I want you to explain, you know, people think trauma is all about our psychology. Talk to me about it because it's really got more underpinnings to our body itself and our biology. Totally. And I would say, you know, does that make me weird that I love talking about trauma? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Because you have the solution to the trauma. That's a different. Yeah. 
Exactly. And I think that that's what does make it different for me is like, it would be a dark and heavy subject if I didn't feel like I had tools and hope. And there was a time when I didn't have tools and I didn't have hope. And it was a struggle. When we look at those dark times in our life, being able to even see that those are times of trauma for us, those are actually times that we are experiencing overwhelm. And we just need a different framework for understanding what are those experiences in life that are actually traumatic? And then what can we do about it? Because that's where many people then get stuck and it gets stored in their body and they end up carrying around like this heavy burden from stored trauma that's unnecessary. The topic of trauma, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to have a fun conversation about it and be able to give people hope and tools for being able to address the biology because many people are yeah, still in this idea that we've been taught that, hey, trauma is just your psychology. You just need to change your thoughts. And there's a lot of a lot of modalities around that, even some of our therapies, right? Like the CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, it's all focused on just changing your thoughts. And yet we know that trauma is something that the body experiences and specifically like the autonomic nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. And so that's where we need to go. And when we just talk about it, it's all just head stuff, but we're not dropping into the body where the trauma is actually stored. So you you mentioned the autonomic nervous system, and then we have the the you know sympathetic, parasympathetic are all part of that. And I think you know we don't realize that the majority of what's happening in our body is kind of subconscious anyway. It's not in. We think that our logical PhD sort of side of our brain that can make up story and talk about it and logic it out can really act on it, but most of that action is happening unbeknownst to our little intelligent self. And that's part of what happens with trauma is actually trauma further kind of disconnects us from our body. And so we tend to spend more time trying to analyze things, trying to understand things rather than being able to feel things and then move through those feelings. Many times what has happened, and sometimes this has been pattern that has been there since early childhood, where we're so used to being uncomfortable with those feelings that we cut them off. And we either distract ourselves, we get super busy, or we, you know, whatever, right? There's there's a million ways to di- distract ourselves, even things like social media and TV, or we numb those feelings, right? And there's many ways to numb those feelings. It's not just with things like food or alcohol or, I mean, a long list of numbing, but even just in our posture, we often will find ourselves in a posture that is helping to cut off the signals coming up our vagus nerve coming in from our nervous system from our body to our brain and it's like no like those are uncomfortable it's not i don't want to be in my body my body there i feel the anxiety i feel the knot in my stomach i feel the tension in my muscles i feel the fear in my chest it, it whatever it is it's our it, the sensations in our body and we actually unconsciously like you say unconsciously walk around trying to numb and distract and cut those feelings off and spend as much time as we can in our heads. And then when we go to do some type of therapy, right? Like we're still right there in our heads. And so it's that process of safely being able to start to go into the body to even know what am I working with here? Like, what am I dealing with? Sometimes people can have an experience where that they do that too fast And then they're overwhelmed with the sensations that are coming up from their body and the messages that are coming up. And so it's like, oh yeah, that's definitely not safe. Let me go back up into my head. 
And so it, it further just disconnects us, disconnects us until we're kind of walking around almost without a body. And we're just uh, trying to move through life, analyzing and understanding and not actually being present for the life. Yeah, I think, um, you know, hearing you say that, I think the majority of so many people to some degree, when they try and work on their traumas and there's like big T trauma, little T trauma, right? And there's this impression that the only trauma is the really big trauma where I would say probably it's a bunch of little T's that add up over time. But sometimes just in the therapies in which we work on those, the order in which we do it, the things in which we're doing sometimes can be vicariously traumatic in themselves because you're re-experiencing that. Absolutely. And even when you say that, like I think of all of the practitioners, all of the providers, any person who's in a helping profession and the amount of burnout that they experience through this vicarious trauma where they're being exposed to people who they have their emotional ups and downs and dysregulation. And as the provider, as the person who is supposed to be helping them, we step in to help them and all of our energy is going towards that. And we're so out of our own body that we don't realize the level of exhaustion we have until at the end of the day, when we have that moment to stop and pause and we're like, oh my goodness, right? And then we go into our own coping mechanisms. And then that cycle continues. Anytime that the body is experiencing overwhelm, that's actually trauma. And so for many people, every day, they're almost re-traumatizing themselves because of the amount of overwhelm that they are experiencing in their daily life. And when we think about all of the little things that can happen, right? And when when I think of times that I've been at my max, at my max capacity, and then something happens that I just wasn't prepared for, like I get the flat tire in my car, right? And then all of a sudden, like that has become the one thing that just threw me over the edge. Well, those are the types of things that we don't think of as trauma. And yet, if it's overwhelming us, we're being put back into that trauma place. I like to think of it as, you know, we have our trauma self and we have our healing self and it's like a balance. And it's how much am I, how much am I putting over here to help my healing self be the one that's guiding me today versus have I depleted all of that? And I'm really just running off of the trauma self and these patterns of stress and overwhelm that have just become part of our daily life. Yes, definitely. You know, I, I have the unique opportunity, you know, in my clinic, because we have physicians and we have counselors, we have energy therapists, we have all these other things. And it is interesting to watch those people interact and to, to watch kind of the order in which we do things and to see when somebody is able to maybe work through those traumas, both their own and help their patients' traumas in a way that's more meaningful. Because I know professionally, having been in this industry for almost 20 years, practitioners are struggling. They're struggling just, just to be there and hold a safe space for their patients and clients. But I would say the disconnection and, and other things that we've experienced over the last two years and other ways that we can distract ourselves is just adding to that. Because I know you work with a lot of professionals, you know, helping them work on it so they can stay in that healing modality and help people. Yeah. And Betty, let me, let me share this with your audience because this idea of vicarious trauma is so important and so overlooked and misunderstood because when we are watching someone else go through something, if we have what I would call trauma patterns in our own nervous system, 
it's almost as if we can't separate what they're experiencing from what we're going through. And so we're being pulled into their experience and being traumatized just by watching them go through something hard. For those of us who may have had significant loss in our past, right? And maybe at that time in your life, it was such a big loss that you didn't feel like you could process it at the time. And it was like, you know what? Like, this is too much. I need to put it in a box. I'll put it up there on the shelf. I'll come back later when I have time because right now, like, I've got kids to take care of. I've got rent to pay. I've got, I I can't let myself fall apart. And so I need to, I need to kind of put this over there for a time. And then when we watch someone else lose something and we watch their grief and their even shock in the moment when they get the, the news, for example, we go back to our own loss and grief if we have not resolved it. We're not even technically experiencing it. We're watching someone else. And yet we are being traumatized in that process. And I think of so many practitioners, providers, professionals in that space right now, where, again, they may not know it, right? Like this unconsciously, we have stored trauma that that we're just not even aware of. But that would be one way in which a person could know that they have stored trauma is what is your, your reaction? What is your experience in watching someone else go through something? whether that's grief, whether that's, uh, whether that's an accident, right? Or whether that's whatever it is. When I think of the news, right? This is when the news can just become vicarious trauma for people because whatever you're seeing on the news, if you're seeing like, oh, this family got devastated by this natural disaster. And if you have experienced loss that you haven't completely resolved and you've got that overwhelm and trauma still in your nervous system, you're being triggered by that without even realizing it, or maybe you do realize it, right? And you, and you reach for kind of a coping mechanism to, to manage that intensity of emotion that came up for you by watching that. This is the vicarious trauma that we all can experience in just being around other people who are having their life experiences. And yet, ah, like it triggers, it triggers that trauma that's in us that has not been resolved. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that about the news. I literally have not watched a news station in 18 years. Yeah. I just won't. I just won't. You know, because I, I, you know, I watch, especially in the last two years where we know social media is, you know, intentionally manipulating your content to cause triggers, right? It's because they know you get worked up and then you watch it. And it is, it's so true. And, but, but again, how we self-select to watch whatever news story or what we read, it's, it's, to some degree, we, so this is going to become a question. Do we almost want to do that to ourselves? Ah. You know, if you kind of look at it, like, is there, is there something driving, you know, I think I, I kind of think this is my theory and I could be completely wrong, but I think, you know, as animals, we were trained to watch out for predators and things that might harm us. And I think to some degree that drive also causes us to kind of in a sort of inappropriate way dig into the things that sort of hurt, scratch, itch, right? That sort of get us worked up. I, I don't know if that's true, but it feels like that, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Especially now, everything's so polarized. Very much so. And you're touching on something that I rarely get to talk to anybody about. So I'm super excited to <laughs> go into this. Like we actually can become addicted to these emotions. We can become addicted to our 
a sense of fear or anger because it releases chemicals that we are deficient in, especially that dopamine. And so we see this actually all the time. People can actually become addicted to these big emotional releases. And so they can feel like, oh, just, you know, something is brewing, but I can't put my finger on it. But then they, you know, think of, oh, but, you know, this movie, for example, is really calling me. And so they'll go and they'll watch this movie that they've watched before. And it's, you know, their, it's like a, their comfort food movie, right? And they, they know it. It's so predictable because at that certain point in the movie, it's touched on something and then they, ha- they cry a lot and they have this huge emotional re- release and they feel so much better. And, and then it happens again. So we actually can become addicted to these kinds of emotional highs, even if they are negative emotional highs. And we, we, we seek it out if we've got some of these trauma patterns, fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is fascinating because we are, we're getting a, we're getting a biological and neurological hit from that. And dopamine, you know, is kind of our natural sort of pick me up almost cocaine to some degree. So yeah. So I, yeah, I do, I do look at that and go, you know, what things do I drive into my world that give me that? Mine is usually thrill related, right? Right. Jump out of an airplane, <laughs> right. ride a bicycle. You and I, so Amy and I are major cyclists. We love cycling. We've cycled together, which is awesome. Or even, you know, driving a car fast. Like I have, you know, the thrill of starting a business. I have all these other ones that I try and hone that dopamine right. first <laughs> in another way. But, but believe me, I could easily get worked up over something if I were to you know, drop into that and stay there. So I I purposely try not to do that. Yeah. It's interesting because as you talk about the dopamine, then I want to bring in this element of boredom and boredom is very dangerous for certain people who have, especially even under methylators, right? Under methylators have a low dopamine activity, but you can have low dopamine activity for other reasons as well. And these are the, the ones who become the adrenaline seekers and the thrill seekers because they need that dopamine. And so for people who, especially in the last couple of years, Betty, who maybe had a prior addiction in their life, and then all of a sudden they're stuck at home, they can't leave, right? Like talk about uh, a big struggle for them, especially. And one of the first things that happened with COVID was the alcohol sales soared through the roof. And at that time, I was still running a 20-bed medical detox unit. And the number of relapses, people who had been sober and abstinent for years, and all of a sudden, just the boredom of, I can't get out and do anything. I can't go to the gym and exercise because that's another way we get dopamine. I can't you know, do this. And, and it's the boredom that is one of the most dangerous things for people with low dopamine or with those who have an addiction history one of the biggest reasons for their relapse. They think it's, they think it's other things, but at the core of it, it comes down to boredom. I know for, you know, working as a nutritionist and working with people, when we start working on the emotional things around food, I consider boredom one of the top, like just, you can't go there because your brain doesn't know what to do. So you immediately look for that hit, right? And for me, I would say that's my most toxic emotion. I cannot sit within boredom. I will, I will create something to keep my mind like, occupied. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why Betty and I are soul sisters. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true. You know, it's, I'm glad you said this because we're wired differently, right? Based on our genetics. I do a lot of genetics in my clinic and all the clinicians that work with me. And I love it because we can look at these pathways. Like I'll, I can give an example of mine. I, I actually have a high level of dopamine. I have a high concentration of dopamine receptors, right? 
So I have a general sense of self that is fairly good. Like I have a general sense of self. I can get there pretty easily. But things that drop me out of that, I want an adrenaline hit or a little hit of dopamine, but I won't stay in a down position very long. But I do need, I, I can't do monotony. Like I have to have novelty in that wears it off. Whereas other people I know are very low dopamine. And so they, they need something to bring it up. And when they go low, they go much lower. And I think it's valuable because you know that there's biology that predispose us like that. Walk through some of the ones that you know of, particularly that might predispose us to trauma. This is one of the fascinating things that I've kind of landed on with my work. I wasn't expecting to find this stuff, but there is actually biology that will predispose someone to trauma. As a medical physician, going through my medical training, I had been taught the adverse childhood experiences. And it's this idea that stress or trauma in childhood leads to changes in your biology that then present as diseases in adulthood. And they've now been able to really see that most chronic conditions have an association with an adverse childhood event or an experience. So we've kind of known that we don't, we haven't known all the details, but we've known that, hey, like trauma kind of changes your biology, but there is biology that we can have that will actually make us more at risk for experiencing trauma in our life. And if we can identify that, my goodness, like how much, how much (laughs) could we save ourselves from having to experience in life? And the neurotransmitters or the brain chemistry is certainly one piece of that. And just going back to dopamine, let's just talk about that for a second, because dopamine and oxytocin are two chemicals, hormones. Oxytocin is technically a neurohormone that is essential for a secure attachment bond with your with your mother. And so we talk about an attachment style and hey, what's your attachment style? And they've, you know, given labels to four different types of attachment styles which I do not find is useful, but what we're talking about is for a healthy secure attachment as opposed to an insecure attachment. You have to have dopamine and oxytocin being in that in that bath that's occurring between you and mom. So what happens if baby's genetics, epigenetics, or their biochemistry is causing them to have low dopamine or oxytocin levels? You can have the best mom in the world who is doing all of the most amazing relationship, eye contact, touch, everything, but baby's system, nervous system, is not available for that level of connection and attachment. And so that child will still be coming out of their childhood. And this happens fairly early, even by year one, by year two of life, that your attachment style is wired into your nervous system. They're coming out with an insecure attachment style. So meaning they generally see the world as unsafe. They generally don't trust anybody and they have all of the bracing patterns, guarding patterns, They've already learned how to cut off their body sensations because they have felt alone. They have felt like no one understands them. They have felt like no one really sees them for who they are. And that's their very early life experience. And so the attachment is actually one of the, also another big predisposition for future life trauma. Because once you have those patterns, it's already wired into your system to respond to events in a certain way. You're going to be looking for danger. You're going to be looking for what is wrong rather than being able to know and have a gut feeling 
just knowing that I'm going to be okay. I don't necessarily know how it's all going to work out. And I don't need to know how it's all going to work out. Whereas you take someone with an insecure attachment, they don't know that they are going to be okay. They need to know how everything is going to work out in order to even feel safe. And so the the attachment patterns become a predisposition for future trauma. And the attachment patterns can be a result of low dopamine activity, which we can get from epigenetics, genetics, biochemistry, all of that. Uh, I'm even thinking of some of the things that moms can experience. So high copper is one of those things that is strongly associated with postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. And so there's another biochemistry factor that actually predisposes someone to become overwhelmed. And when they fall into that level of depression, like that's a trauma response. That is an overwhelm of the system. And you go into what I call the freeze response, where you're just, you're kind of numb, right? You're just numb. You may be getting through the, the day by going through the motions. You're, you're taking care of your baby. You're doing the, the essentials, but there's not the joy in life. There's not the zest. There's not the, the happiness that you would expect to have with your new baby. And so that would be another example of a biology that someone can have that is fixable. It's correctable. Like it's, it's unnecessary to have that experience of postpartum depression and anxiety and being able to test someone before they're pregnant would be the best time to test for copper levels, zinc levels, their methylation status, so that we can be correcting that ahead of time and actually be able to prevent an experience that would otherwise be a trauma for them in their life. Right. You know, I, I, I'm very familiar with attachment theory and it's, and I think it's important that you've covered that it really is some biological effect, you know, because that's, I mean, especially in relationship, you know, counseling and things, that's a huge subject in sort of cognitive behavior therapy and relationship therapy. And you don't realize it's like, no, these two people may be wired completely different. And so therefore their attachment style will be different. And one could have gone through major trauma and maybe not see it as great as the other. And the other one had small, tiny traumas and they're very big. That that's important. Right. You know, it really has so much less to do with the event itself and just the state of our system going into that event. Because if we have all of the cellular resources, if we have all of the serotonin and dopamine and magnesium and zinc and B6, and like, if we have everything that our cells need, we can go through events and it will just be a stress we won't actually be crushed by it, right? And that would be kind of another synonym for trauma is feeling crushed by an event. And so part of my frustration, Betty, is seeing how so much of attachment is still addressed through cognitive behavioral therapy. Because not only is it not even reaching the the limbic system and the autonomic nervous system on that level, it's not even addressing the biology that is perpetuating the insecure attachment. And until we look at all of those pieces that even caused it in the first place, we're going to continue to just be talking about the same things for years with our therapists. (laughs) There's an entire industry built on that, right? There's an entire industry. It's it's job security, I suppose. (laughs) Which is necessary. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's a piece of it that's there, but I think the big piece that's missing is what you're bringing to it, which is you can't do the talk therapy without addressing the biology and get the same results. You might be able to get better, but not the same results, not resolution. 
So tell me, how do people, you know, especially with the people that you work with in your programs and things like that, how do they go from like trauma to healing? Because it's obviously a multifaceted approach. It is. And that's kind of the beauty of it is that when we can understand how trauma got stored in the body, we can reverse engineer and just back ourselves out of that process. And so for me, looking at what are the root causes of trauma, because if we understand that trauma was not the event, it was the experience that our body had in that event. Well, then I can look at why was my body overwhelmed? Did I have an insecure attachment going into that event? Did I have some biochemical imbalances? Did I have some deficiencies or did I have some excesses, right? Like I've actually had excess copper. I have pyro disorder. I've, I am an undermethylator. So it's like my, my system had so many reasons to become overwhelmed with all kinds of life experiences that I've had. And then when you have those experiences, then you're really struggling to be able to feel those in the moment because it's so overwhelming given the state of your system. And so we just back it out and it's like, okay, let's start figuring out what are the different pieces for you that contributed to the trauma. And it's not, you know, just the biology. It also is our belief system about ourselves, And that's kind of where that, that attachment theory comes in. And we want to, we want to look at that. And we want to look at that in what I call a very embodied way. So I bring in a lot of somatic work. Somatic is just a Latin word for the tissues. And so, you know, we talk about the issues being in your tissues. And so that's where we need to go. We need to actually work with the body, work with the autonomic nervous system. So I do that through uh, what I call the 21 day journey. And I've mapped out what I have seen as the essential sequence for people to start this process of going into their body so that it is done safely. It's not done too fast for them that they get overwhelmed in the process, but we start reverse engineering and backing ourselves out of the place that we've gotten. So those are the the three kind of prongs that I use in my work is the somatic work and actually working with the body with through different exercises. And and really, it's just creating a different felt experience for the tissues, for the body, not a different thought, a different felt experience. And then being able to look at some of the belief systems and how that can be actually still perpetuating tension patterns or bracing patterns in the body, breathing patterns, for example, as well. But then we have to look at the biology. And for me, the biology does also include some of the neurodevelopment pieces. And did you get enough tummy time that you were able to go through the movements and the reflexes, those patterns that every baby needs to go through in order to have a well-organized and efficient nervous system? Because if your nervous system is not organized well in its development, you will always have a baseline anxiety. Always, because your your brain stem and your brain are getting these messages from your periphery, from your sensory environment that's like, ooh, we don't like that. That doesn't feel safe. And so we have to even go back and look at neurodevelopment as part of the biology piece. So we're doing labs, we're doing testing, but we're also doing reorganization of the neurodevelopment. And that includes some probably some time on the floor and uh, doing some patterns and some tummy time crawling to reorganize that because... All of that goes into eventually what is the end result of trauma. Trauma is not the beginning. It's actually the end result and we can reverse engineer that. So it sounds to me like 
not only do you have to do all these parts, but there is an order in which they have to be done for them to be done right. Because I'm, I'm sure people are listening and they're like, oh, I've done somatic work. It did or didn't work. Or yeah. I've been in talk therapy for 15 years. It did or didn't work. And it's because it's not in the right order. It's not. And nobody's probably really looked at the chemistry side of it to see it. But right. definitely there could be an ordering problem that would be, I would think, significant. Very significant. And one of the biggest mistakes that I see people making is starting with going into their story right? It's like, oh, I'm, I'm having a hard time getting over this. Let me go talk to somebody about this. And the first place that they go is the story. And that's actually not the first place to go. That would be the wrong order to do things, which is fascinating because that's what, that's kind of what we've been taught, right? Like even in medical school, Betty, I remember being taught, like, you know, I, I went to a medical school that was very, very much about mind, body, whole person care, uh, probably more than any other medical school. And so as we're talking about the emotional component to diseases, it was this understanding of we really need to be referring them to therapy. And it's like, now I know better, but like how, you know, how many people did I, did I, you know, say like, okay, it's, it's time to go talk to somebody about that. It's time to go to go to therapy about that. And it's like, oh, that was actually the wrong order to do things. Uh, when we talk about it, 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 kind of going back to what we were saying about the news, right? We don't, we don't have the tools yet. And so we're just going back into the event that, that traumatized us. And without any tools to change it, we're re-traumatizing ourselves by going back into the story. We need to actually build the capacity of our nervous system first to even feel safe. And that's the whole first week of my 21-day journey is how do we actually create a felt sense of safety for the body? not just be telling ourselves that we feel safe or that we should feel safe, but actually making it be a felt experience of the body in the moment. And then the whole second week is about support. And this actually goes back to early stuff. Many people are not aware of of their attachment patterns. They may not know that they have a degree of insecure attachment until we get to this week of the 21-day journey. And I'm bringing in exercises and movements that specifically create a felt sense of support, support for your back. And I can think back in my life. And if, if in certain times of my life, I had felt like someone had my back, I would have done very differently. If I had felt that I had the support of someone beside me, I would have done very differently. I would have made different decisions, but I didn't feel that support. I didn't feel like anyone had my back. And so I made decisions out of, from my trauma self and they were the best that I could do at the time. But it's like, what if, what if we, what if we could be empowered to be able to do that for ourselves and create a felt sense of no, like someone's got my back and how would that change your life? And so that's the whole second week. And that's all about kind of tapping into those early attachment stuff, because that's where those patterns would have originated from is not feeling the support. Then the third week is all about kind of growth, expansion, learning how to work with boundaries and anger in a healthy way. But even before we do that, right? And many people jump to that. Many people jump to, let me work on my boundaries. No, like you're actually not ready for that. We've got to do this work first. I have to have you feeling safe in your body, supported in your body, and then we can work on boundaries. Because otherwise, you're just pushing people away but calling it healthy boundaries. 
You're just yeah. guarding your heart. <laughs> not well, that's what our little logical mind wants to do. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, exactly. You know, my logical mind says I'm gonna I'm gonna talk out my story right. as much as possible until I'm anesthetized exactly. to the experience. Yes. And then I'm gonna logic my way through it by right. <laughs> by talking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we just that's our logical brain trying to trick over and logic our way out of the sensation. Which is the beautiful thing of what our brain does. So what our brain does for us is it is it justifies. It justifies our decisions and our actions and our reactions. And so our body, our autonomic nervous system is the one that's actually driving the show. Our brain is the one coming behind and justifying what we just did, putting a story to that, putting a meaning to that, that helps us feel better about ourselves. And so uh, when we when we work with trauma, we've got to kind of like work at putting the mind, you know, like we're not turning off our mind. We're actually using our mind to go into our body and focus on like, what's really going on? What's really going on? What that seems like it might have been out of fear. What is the fear really about? What's the fear really about? And then let's tap into that in a safe way. I call it a titrated way because we're not going to jump all the way in. We're not jumping in swimming pools and sink or swim, or we're not jumping off of cliffs. We're just taking the next best step. We're clearing the next best step, taking the next step into our body to figure out what is that really about? Let's, let's peel that back. What is that really about? And all of that message, all of those messages actually come from our body sensations, not our mind. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I could talk about this for hours with you, you know, because it is such a big part of our health and healthcare, health and caring for ourselves. But I know that we're running up against a time constraint. Now you have a summit coming up that we want to make sure that everybody knows about so they can learn about this, listen to a bunch of experts talking about all different aspects of trauma and biology. So tell tell my listeners about it so they know how to get to it and what to do. Yeah. So this is this is my work. So I have put together a biology of trauma summit. This is actually the second annual biology of trauma summit. And the purpose of it is to show people some of the biology pieces behind trauma so that we can really be helping ourselves kind of accelerate our healing journey by bringing in all of these different pieces and not just focusing on one piece and neglecting other pieces. So it's this bridging of the worlds between functional medicine and trauma therapy in a beautiful way so that we can actually integrate those and have them work synergistically together. Fantastic. So everybody, we're going to have the uh, the link in the show notes so you can actually go on and register for the summit and learn a bunch of new things and experience some things in your body. So please, please do that. And Dr. Amy, I'm so I'm so happy you had this conversation and I feel like I have a hundred other questions I really want to ask. So we're going to have to have you back and maybe after the summit where we can dig in a little bit deeper, because I think especially after the last two years, I think we still have a lot collectively as a population to work through and it's got, you know, it's it's not going anywhere. So um, thank you so, so very much for being on this functional life. Ah, Thank you, Betty. Love the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Have a healthy and happy day. Thank you so much for tuning into this functional life. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life, feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. 
I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye.